All right, it's time to get started, everybody. Hope you had enough to eat. There's seconds left. Uh, if you want to come get some afterwards, and you can take a to-go container. Uh, as always, if you appreciate the food and the hospitality, best way to do to show it is to put a tip in the donation bucket here. That goes straight to the kitchen staff. I don't see any of it, uh, so make sure you do that. <clears throat> also. If you haven't subscribed yet, and you have digital access, smartphone, iPad, laptop, go to Disciple Dojo online. Go to the website, slash podcast. You can subscribe. All of our previous studies are listed right there. You can listen to them right on this page, or you can, share, you can download through one of the podcast apps that you use on your phone. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just don't worry about any of this. But if you do know what I'm talking about, Go subscribe, and at the bottom of the page, there's our study of Ruth that's added right here that we're in currently. So all of this is done, all of this is put together, all of this is free for anyone anywhere in the world. There's a group of pastors in India that actually listen to the podcast on numbers. Uh, they just email or judges rather. He just emailed me and said they're listening to it with their leadership team. So it's pretty cool the reach that we have, but that only happens through people supporting this ministry um, because we are 100% donor supported. So check out the podcast. The biggest thing you can do besides becoming a monthly donor is share these links with people. Copy, paste, share on your Facebook, on your Twitter, on your emails, at your swap meets, at your quilting circles, whatever you do, whatever you're into at the barbershop, wherever you are, just say, hey, you should listen to this. It's weekly teaching through the Old Testament. It's absolutely free. Check it out. Um, that is a huge impact that has a huge impact on us as a ministry and helps this all this continue so please there's the pitch for the day take it and do as you will but let's jump back into Ruth now because we're in the book of Ruth chapter 3 now we said last week Ruth could have ended in chapter 2 and it would have been a happy ending Naomi and Ruth were provided for they had their needs met they were shown extravagant kindness by this man of valor Boaz and that would be a perfectly suitable ending to the book. But God's not done yet. Naomi's not done yet. And Ruth's not done yet. Uh, there's still more that God is going to do to bring, out, uh, bring Ruth and Naomi back from this place of desolation and pain and hardship that they've been in. So, chapter 3. This is after we ended chapter 2 with Ruth lived or stayed with uh, the servant girls of Boaz, the, the, the household or the uh, field workers, <clears throat> and she stayed with them as a scavenger in Boaz's field. And it ended with, it says, through the barley and the wheat harvest. She lived with her mother-in-law during this time. So the picture is, and this is about seven or eight weeks of Naomi and Ruth living somewhere in Bethlehem or, or somewhere right outside of Bethlehem. And her getting up every day and going out to the field to work, the different fields, to work with Boaz's servant girls. And by work, meaning to pick up the scraps of what was left over. But we know last week that Boaz had instructed his workers, hey, pull out a little bit of the good stuff and leave it for them. So again, we talked about how it's providing opportunity rather than just a handout. It's providing dignity rather than just charity. Uh, but it was also gracious, and, and he didn't have to do any of this. And so Ruth's uh, initiative to go out and to ask to be able to glean among the sheaves, which we saw that was above what the law allowed for, uh, her initiative was, was rewarded with generosity. 
And this chapter, again, we're going to see her and Naomi taking initiative. Chapter 3 says, One day, Naomi, <clears throat> one day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not try to find you a house? For, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? So this is a rhetorical question. Hey, isn't it time for me to provide? And that word for provide a home is actually the word rest. So the name Manuach is where the name Noah comes from. Uh, Noah, the guy with the ark. And it means to rest. And that's exactly what she asked back in chapter 1. If you remember, when she told, when she was trying to shoo Ruth back to Moab with uh, Orpah, and she's like, shoo, go back home. Go, go find rest in the house of your mother. Or, no, excuse me, go find rest in the arms of another husband. Like, you, you've, my sons are dead. You have no ties to me. Go home and hopefully you can find rest there. So we see that concept of finding rest doesn't just mean relax. It means find a home, find security, find peace, find wholeness. And that's what she's initially told her she could do back in Moab. But Ruth refused to. She said, no, as we saw, she said, where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll, where you die, I'll die. And so Ruth refused to find that rest back in Moab, but rather she yoked herself to Israel and the God of Israel and to Naomi, her mother-in-law, through a, a bond of chesed, of, of, of kinship. And so now, Naomi says, you've, you've worked for months now, out in the, the spring heat, gathering, scavenging, picking, to feed us, to feed me. Uh, i got to find you a house. i got to find you rest. I've got to find you a place here so that you're not constantly going to be the widow, the immigrant, the outsider, the scavenger. Like, I need to provide for you. You've provided for me. And so she says, is not Boaz with whose servant girls you have been a kinsman of ours? Like, hey, this is our relative, right? <clears throat> Tonight, he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So she says, so, so here's the plan. Tonight, he's going to be winnowing barley. What is winnowing barley? We've talked about this. First, you harvest. You chop it down. Then you gather it into sheaves. Then you bring it to the threshing floor. Threshing floor would be a, a circular either stone or, or tamped down clay surface where you'd throw all of the grain and then an animal would walk around in a circle and grind it, thresh it, smash it, and separate the wheat from the, the chaff, the kernel from the husk. Then you would take it and you would winnow it. So that means you take a pitchfork or a fan or a, a, some type of shovel and you'd start throwing it up in the air. And the wind would blow the chaff away and the wheat would fall. And so over time you'd have a pile of kernels of wheat, or in this case barley, that are useful after the chaff had all been blown away. So this is a long, intensive, labor-intensive process. It took a long time. It, it wasn't, there was no machine that you could just throw the stuff in and it would do this. Um, and so what would happen is people, one, they would do it at night. Because it's hot during the day to be out there shoving piles of grain, throwing them up in the air. I mean, this is hard work. So it makes sense in the heat of the Middle East arid desert climate, not technically desert, but close to it if you've been there. It would make sense to do this at night when it's a lot cooler. But you would also do it at night because there would be a night breeze that would not just make it cooler, but would also blow the chaff away a little easier. Um, <clears throat> and because of this, it was like an event. So the workers would do it, and, and, and Boaz would be there overseeing it. And they would sleep on the threshing room floor. Not just because they liked grain, but because if they didn't, obviously people could come in. This is when time for a thief would be to come in and steal the stuff. 
after it's been processed and it's ready to go, that's when it's at its most vulnerable. So workers and owners and people would stay there with it. They'd camp out with their profits. You know, it's like having a big stack of money just sitting out in the open. So they would be there. So she says, hey, Boaz, you know, he's going to be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So verse 3, wash and perfume yourself. Literally, she says anoint yourself uh, with, with oil. Put oil on. Uh, wash and perfume yourself. And put on, and NIV here says, put on your best clothes. But that word doesn't, that's not the word for best clothes. It's just the word simla. It just is garment. It's the thing that you wrapped yourself around uh, as an outer covering. It's, it's the thing that Exodus 22 says, you shall not take a widow's garment in, in pledge because then she wouldn't have any way to cover herself at night. That's the thing that this word is. So it's not like, this. see, NIV kind of romanticizes this story a little bit. Like, hey, get all prettied up, get all gussied up. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that. You know, we, a lot of people want to read this as a love story and a fairy tale and a Prince Charming type thing. But really, it's, hey, you're going out at night. Get your cloak. Put it on. Wrap yourself up. Because you're going to be out there in the, eve, in the cold of the night. Um, but there's also a sense of when she says, you know, put oil on, put on your cloak, put on your garment, um, perfume yourself, you know, make yourself presentable. Yeah, there's some of that. But also remember, Ruth is a widow. And in widows do times of mourning for a long time, like a period of weeks, sometimes months. And so this is possibly, it's very likely that what Naomi is telling Ruth to do is say, you've been the widow worker. Now it's time for you to become the Israelite woman. You've been the woman in mourning. Now it's going to be time for you to enter into our society. To, to, to... She does exactly what David does. When his child, he gets word that his child's going to die from Bathsheba, that whole incident. And after the child dies, it says David got up. He anointed himself with oil and, and freshened up. He put on his garment and he went about his business. And everybody was like, oh, you're not mourning anymore. So it, the sense of Ruth doing this is almost like her coming out of mourning every bit as much as her getting herself ready for the big ball, as it's usually taught. Um, yeah, is she dressing nice? Is she smelling nice? Is she doing all that stuff to be presentable? Sure. Is she going to go make a gesture that's pretty overt? Absolutely. But there's also just day-to-day -day realities behind what she's doing, and she's transitioning from mourning destitution to uh, entering into Bethlehemite society in this section. And so Naomi's helping her or, or urging her to do this. So get yourself ready. Get yourself, you know, smell nice. Put on your outer garment because you're going to be out in the cold and you're going to go out tonight. Uh, it says, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his, and NIV says feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. So, <clears throat> she tells her, get, put on your outer garment, put on perfume, anoint yourself with oil, uh, which you have to do in the ancient world because this is before deodorant. I mean, you were out there working in the field. People stink. People stunk back then. And so you would use perfume and oil to mask the smell. I mean, go hang out with day laborers after a hard day's work. They stink. We stink if we work all day. It's just natural. So there's, there's part of this is just practicality, like make yourself pleasing, make yourself presentable, you know, wash up or clean up. 
Um, but then she says, go and uncover his, NIV says feet. Now, there's a word for feet, and it's the word regal. But then this is a different word. This is a word that means like footing. It's almost like a participle version of feet. Uh, it, it's like place of where your feet are, your foot area. The reason this is important is because foot in Hebrew, regal, is a euphemism for your genitals. Alright, so there's many figures of speech where foot is used where we would use a word for some type of genitalia. Um, there's to, to cover one's feet, that's, that's a euphemism for going and using the bathroom. Because uh, you literally cover your feet as you squat down and your garments cover up your feet, but you're doing number two. <laughs> like there's, there's different ways that the Hebrews delicately talked about things. So they wouldn't have to be straightforward. And so the, uh, one of the main euphemisms for your naughty bits is feet or foot. So scholars, some scholars have said, so this is her saying, take his pants off. Like get in there. Like, it's a very overtly sexual act. Now, it is, um, it is an enticing story. And what she's doing is ambiguous enough to be seen as illicit. But it's important to know that the Hebrew does not use the regular euphemism for private parts. It says footing or, 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 or a form of that word foot. So whatever she's doing, and I'll say what, you know, a, a likely explanation in just a second. Whatever she's doing, it's right on the border of scandalous. It's re and then in the narrator's verbiage, it's real close to being scandalous. And in the eyes of anybody observing, it's real close to being scandalous. That's why Naomi says, don't let anybody see, don't let him see you. Right? And she does it secretly. It is a scandalous thing she's doing, and it is borderline illicit. Possibly into being illicit in our culture. Um, we'll see what that means in just a minute, but she says, just uncover his footing, feet, and lie down. He'll tell you what to do. Now this is a huge leap for Naomi. She is putting a lot of trust in Boaz, her relative. Boaz is likely her cousin or something like that. So she's putting a lot of trust in his character because a, a, a lower class servant working foreign woman coming into a threshing floor at night where the guys are all sleeping after a, you know, a, a meal of eating and drinking revelry and uncovering his feet, that's pretty overt or could be taken as overt. And there's a good chance that any normal person, especially in the period of the judges, when everybody's debauched and running after pagan gods anyway, would take advantage of that behavior and take advantage of Ruth. And so her actions would be, it's very possible they could be seen as what a prostitute would do, what a, what a woman of the night would do, what somebody would, you know, like it's possible to read her actions in a very bad light. But it's also possible to read her actions in a very good light because of, of how ambiguous it is and, and what she's doing uh, being intentional but not over the line of illicit. And we'll see what I mean by that as we go on. But, but this is a cultural thing that's just weird for us and, and the whole uncovering the feet. The, the word for, like in, in, back in Leviticus, the sex chapter, 18, if you remember that. It said, all these you will not have sex with, you will not have sex with so-and-so, your mother, your aunt. Your, you know. And it said, you will not have sex with your father's wife. You will not uncover the nakedness of your father. That's the word used. And it, and it, it literally says, uncover the wing 
or the corner of the garment of your father. So uncovering the garment is a euphemism itself for a sexual act. It's important to keep in mind. So everything she's doing is, is very explicitly charged uh, and could easily be seen that way by anybody except Boaz. And Boaz is actually going to uh, know exactly what she's doing and his response is going to show. So Ruth says, verse 5, this is a pretty dangerous mission that she's been sent on, or at least it could put her in a really bad situation. But she says, I'll do whatever you say. Ruth answers. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, how you guys feel right now? You've had a good meal. We haven't had much wine, I don't think, unless you snuck something in a flask. Uh, but imagine a good meal like this and then having some wine on top of that. You're feeling good, maybe a little buzz, but you're just content. Just a good after-dinner, post-Thanksgiving nap. Right? It's time to lay down. It's been a hard day of work. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, footing, whatever she uncovered, and lay down. In the middle of the night, and NIV says something startled the man. Hebrew literally says he shook. So it could either be like something startled him as the NIV interprets it, or he shivered because he was cold. Why? Because his legs were uncovered. So this, we see this was to wake him up, but without doing it explicitly. In the middle of the night, he shivered, he shook, something started him. He turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. NIV glosses over. Hebrew literally says he turned and behold, a woman lying at his feet. It's, a, it's kind of an emphatic in Hebrew. Verse 9, who are you? He asked. Remember, it's dark. It's night. This is, he has, that's the first question you should ask if you find somebody laying at your feet and you're half uncovered. I'm your servant Ruth, she said. Now, that's where she should have stopped, right? Because Naomi just said, go lay down, uncover his feet. He'll tell you what to do. Ruth has not stopped at the norm yet in this story. She has always gone above and beyond. She went to, win, or she went to, to scavenge in the field to glean and asked to glean among the sheaves as well, not just after where it was cut down. Ruth is somebody who's gone above and beyond. Naomi told her, go back to your house. She said, no, I'm coming with you. And, and furthermore, I'm uniting with you for life. And where you go, I'm going to go. Where you're buried, I'm going to be buried. Ruth has always been uh, going above and beyond. That's part of the character of Ruth in the book that it brings out. She doesn't just meekly do what she's told. She takes initiative. She's very bold in what she does within this cultural context, but it gets glossed over a lot of times just because we're think that this is just a simple love story but no she's going above and beyond so she says i'm your servant ruth spread the wing the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer she flat out lays down the gauntlet with boaz she so there's she's operating on two levels it's very crafty now we see why the whole uncover the feet thing matters she uncovers his feet he wakes, he's chilly. He wakes up. Oh, it's cold. Whoa, there's somebody here. Who are you? I'm Ruth. You're my kinsman redeemer. Cover me up. So she's, she's literally saying, it's cold. Put your garment around me. Right? Like, hey, it's cold here. Can I have some of that blanket? Like, that's literally what she's asking. But symbolically, what she's asking is, marry me. Because in marriage, 
in Near Eastern culture and even today in Middle Eastern culture, the way of one of the things you do to to solidify the marriage is the man, the husband, takes his cloak and wraps it around his wife, taking her under his wing and saying, I'm going to be your protector. I'm going to be your provider. I'm going to take you... Where Adam and Eve were separated, God pulled from the side of Adam and He made Eve and there was separation. Now, symbolically, marriage is bringing back to the side that part of you that was taken, if you're the man. And so pulling your garment around somebody is taking them back to your side, reuniting, becoming one flesh, and taking them under the shelter of your wing, just like a bird would shelter her chicks under her wing in times of danger. It's beautiful imagery. It's something I wish Christian marriages had kept it because it's a really, it's way cooler than pouring sand or lighting unity candles. Like It's a much cooler symbolic action of saying, I am bringing you into my protection, into my service, into my um, life, into my being. I'm reuniting. So that's the imagery behind spreading your garment, the, the wing of your garment. She uses the word wing which is translated as corner. The wing of your garment over somebody, that's the image that she's saying, hey, you, marry me. She's proposing to him. Ruth is proposing to Boaz in no uncertain terms. There's no way to get around it. She has initiated this relationship. She has pursued this relationship. And she's proposing to him. Now this does not sit well with many people that preach and teach. Many people that preach and teach. I grew up and did campus ministry at college and young adult ministry, 20s and 30s. So, so I'm, I've been thoroughly since the 90s in the world of young adults, of people who are starting to get to that marriage age. And the thing that dominated Christian subculture, in the, especially in the early to mid-90s and then 2000s, was that the woman never pursues. It's ungodly. It's unladylike. It's unbecoming. You are to be, as Elizabeth Elliot said, I think it's Elizabeth, a, a, a lady in waiting. You're to be the lady in waiting. Your Boaz will come find you. I mean, I've heard sermons. You go to campus ministry, you will hear these as sermons preached all the time. You, your Boaz will find you. Boaz did not find Ruth until after she'd uncovered him and laid at his feet. So the point in all this is. This is not a way to how to find you a man. All right? This is not a textbook on how to date. <clears throat> this is not a story about how to do modern relationships. It gets turned into all of that because, well, that'll attract people to the church and young people and women and doing a woman's study and we can put flowers on the cover and Ruth, a love story, and da 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 da. And it becomes this fabulized thing that gets us away from what's happening here, which is a person going from destitution to protection under the wing. That's what the story of Ruth is about. Protection under the wings. Remember what Boaz's blessing was in the the last chapter when he found out about Ruth and he's like, I've heard everything. May God bless you. May the Lord under whose wing you have come bless you. That That was what he asked for. Now Ruth is flipping the script on him and saying, hey, you be that blessing. You be the one under whose wing I come. In other words, you be the face of God to me and my family right now. It's very, very bold. It's very unladylike. <laughs> Extremely unladylike. 
And that's the thing, if we try to read this and get some kind of direction on how to find relationships, we're, we're it's like looking for MapQuest directions in a cookbook. We're just not, we're not looking at the right place. So this is, you can't read, there's so many sermons where this is a sweet love story and, and, and then people tie it into other stuff and, and then the message is, so ladies, you just wait and just be, don't ever pursue, don't ever, do, do, do. that's nonsense, okay? That's not what this is about. This isn't about that. Whether a woman should or shouldn't pursue a man, that's up to the woman, the man, and God. And, and the situation, everything's different. That's up to the cultures that you're in. And that's how, you know, there's so many other factors that you have to weigh in instead of just pulling a story out of the Bible and making it a story about courtship or dating or whatever. So we just have to be really careful with that because it'll lead us astray of the true story of Ruth and what's going on. So the one woman, one of two women in the Bible who have a book named after them, Esther's the other one, she's the example of a woman pursuing a man and her proposing to him. So just remember that when you hear a lot of these gender role sermons and just know that maybe what's getting preached is coming more from culture than from Scripture. Because Scripture pushes back against culture all the time in so many different ways. Now, ladies, if you're single, does this mean run out and start uncovering, unzipping men's pants? And all? No, no, do not do that. Because in our culture, that will get you arrested in a restraining order. Um, or it'll get you somebody really creepy who's like, hey, I'm into this. Either way, you want to avoid those things. Don't take your dating or your relationship advice verbatim from the cultures of the Bible. Do a little translation. In other words, bringing the, the principles that are in the story in its context into our context today and saying, what are these principles? And the principles in this one for Naomi and Ruth, for Naomi, it's I need to provide for this woman who has provided for me. I need to show chesed to this woman who has shown chesed to me. So I'm going to do that by using what I know of our family structure and the obligations of Boaz to, to try to get him to be the one who brings her under his wing, who takes her in. I want to find a place of rest for her. What better person than the man whose field she's been working in, who's ordered his men not to touch her, not to take advantage of her, to give generously to her. Everything about Boaz is like, this is a, a man of character. This, and, and the text says nothing about his looks. It just says he's a man of noble character, of, of high reputation, a man of valor. And so she is, that's, that's what I'm going to try to find for my daughter-in-law. And then Ruth is, I'm going to honor what my mother's wanting to do, my mother-in-law. I'm going to do what she says. It involves risk. It involves uncertainty. I could very well be branded that immoral immigrant whore coming to seduce our Israelite Bethlehemite men and lure them off into worshiping those Moabite gods just like happened back in Phineas's day. She could very well have been seen that way, coming to a threshing floor at night after they've eaten and drinking. It's the most unladylike thing that she could do. It violates all kinds of cultural norms in that society and in our society today. But yet Ruth does it. She takes the risk. And she doesn't just risk. She then goes above and beyond. And when she gets her moment, when Boaz is right there and he says, who are you? She doesn't just acquiesce, meek, oh, I'm Ruth. How's it going? No, she says, I'm Ruth. You're a kinsman redeemer to our family. Marry me. Take me in. Spread your wing over me. That is scandalous. Scandalous behavior. Boaz's response is fascinating. 
and it's not uh, the response you'd expect would be revulsion. Ugh, who is this, this servant approaching me? This is my whole operation. I'm the CEO. This is somebody not even working in the mailroom. This is somebody that I let empty the trash cans. And they're coming to me, the CEO, and they're saying, marry me. So right then and there, his response would have been like, no, I'm a man of noble character. I'm a man of high standing. You're an immigrant. You're an, you're, you're, you, let me see your green card. You know, you, I don't even know if you came here legally or not. Like, who are you? And you're working in my field. You're a woman. You, a woman approaching a man. I'm the one who's supposed to approach your family to try to secure a marriage. I'm the one who's supposed, you know, like there's cultural norms and, and this completely turns all of them on their head. And yet Ruth's doing it. And so Boaz is faced with a choice. Do I shame this woman? Do I reject this woman politely? Do I uh, take advantage of this woman? He can, he can do what he wants. He's an older man. She's a younger woman. It's dark. There's nobody around. All he's got to do is say, she came to seduce me. He can do whatever he wants with her, and it'll be his word against hers. And everybody will believe Boaz. Nobody would believe Ruth. So this situation is charged for Boaz if he was a man like most other men in Israel at the time, as we've seen from the book of Judges last year, that, that Ruth's life is in danger. Certainly her, her um, integrity is at danger, but even her life is at danger at this point. It all hinges on Boaz's character. Everything hinges on his character. And as we've seen, remember how the book of Judges ended? Story after story of women being abused, raped, killed. There's no reason to think that Ruth is going to experience anything but that, judging from the book of Judges. But we know Boaz. We've seen his character. Now, in the middle of the night, with no one around, and it's dark, and he's got a beautiful woman. We don't know if she's beautiful. We just assume it. The text never says anything about her beauty. But he's got a, a wanting woman at his feet. This is in, nobody has to know. This is his moment. He could do whatever he wants. And his response maintains his integrity. And he doesn't just accept and tolerate, he actually blesses, recognizes what she's risked to do this, recognizes what's at stake, even recognizing his own integrity to the point of possibly endangering this whole thing from happening, as we're going to see. <clears throat> and, and his response instead is to again be the face of God's kindness to this woman who's a widow, destitute immigrant. But we don't have time. We got to go. So next week, we're going to see Boaz's response. Uh, after next week, we're going to take a three-week hiatus from Ruth. I'm going to be gone. I'll be in New York one week. I'll be in India for two other weeks. Got a great guest teacher coming in. He's going to fill in for me for three weeks. Um, you guys are going to be blessed, and it'll be a change-up, and it'll be something different. And so come hungry. Come ready to learn next week. We'll see how chapter three ends. Uh, until then, have a great week. Bye.